the Gospel of Mark, and we're skipping ahead one uh, section ahead because Pastor Tyson is preaching downtown today, and you're like, well, what does that have to do anything? Well, we are uh, one church, two congregations, and we preach the same sermons and same passages, and so Gray is at his brother's wedding this week. Tyson is preaching there, and so uh, and I'll be at the men's retreat next week, so he'll be preaching here, and he's going to preach the same passage uh, that he preached today, next week. So we're skip, skipping ahead one week. He'll be back next week uh, from the men's retreat to preach on the subject that he's preaching on downtown, which is the calling of the disciples. We'll talk about it briefly today, but let's turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34, and we continue in the great gospel of Mark. <clears throat> Verses 21 through 34. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And that unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. And we give God thanks. So in this section of Mark, uh, and when I mean this section, not just this uh, chapter, but, um, or, or even this, this set of verses, but the, the first section of Mark, which is chapters 1 through chapter 8, verse a, so, uh, so it's chapter 8, verse 1a, so very specific. But that, it really constitutes the first of three acts of the gospel of Mark. And, and in that gospel, in this section, Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? And the, the setting in this first section is Galilee. The last section, uh, the third part, is the setting of Jerusalem, where Jesus, the king, is headed to the cross. But the middle section is, and we'll get to in a few weeks, is uh, really probably several months, <laughs> is, uh, is the go-between as they're leaving Galilee and heading towards Jerusalem, as Jesus begins to march towards the cross. They're asking the question, Mark is asking the question, who is Jesus? And Mark shows us that Jesus is the Messiah. He only inserts his own voice into the, the text once. It's in the very first section of, of the passage, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He tells us Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And he shows us also that Jesus is the King of kings. He's the King of God who's ushering in the kingdom of God. And today... 
if you noticed in our passage this morning, it covers one entire day of ministry. And it's the first day of ministry that Jesus has had. And what Mark is wanting us to show us, wanting to show us is, look what takes place in a single day of the king's ministry as he ushers in the kingdom of God. Day one. Day one, the first day. Jesus is baptized by John. He receives the Holy Spirit. He, uh, as, as he comes up out of the waters of baptism in the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove, and then he receives the divine benediction of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And as soon as that takes place, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness where he is tested, tried, and lives in the wilderness for 40 days with no food. Stop. Just for a second. Think about that. The Father says, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the very first thing he does is drive him into the wilderness where it says there are wild animals, where his physical, he is in physical danger, he is hungry, he's depriving himself, and he goes there to pray. And in that, we know from the other Gospels, he faces Satan himself who tempts him and tries him. And, and he goes through this horrible time Day one, like, so I've just been baptized, I've just received the divine benediction, and then boom, I'm called to suffer. And so much of what we're talk, uh, taught in American Christianity today is that the gospel is the avoidance of suffering, that if you really walk with God, if you really have enough faith, if you really believed him, you would be fabulously wealthy, things would just roll for you, God's divine blessing will always be on you. And God's divine blessing is on Jesus, but he calls him where? To the wilderness. To suffer. Because Jesus is the king, and he's the one who comes to fulfill all righteousness, which we talked about last week, right, as he was baptized. And as doing that, he's identifying with a broken, sinful humanity that deals with the wilderness every day, as you and I do. And just as Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, Jesus is driven out of the, uh, to the wilderness because he's here as the king to not triumph. Ultimately, it is to triumph on the cross, but it's also to suffer, to die, to serve, and to identify with a broken humanity. And many of us have very, very hard thoughts about God because maybe your whole life feels like the wilderness. Maybe you feel like, yeah, that's where I live. I, I'm in danger physically. I'm in danger emotionally. I'm in danger spiritually. I just feel like my life is hard. It's always hard. Then you should love Jesus. <laughs> and you should love Christianity because this is what the king looks like. This is the ministry of the king. I have just begun a, an amazing book, and I just began it this week, but I've had three separate people encourage me to read it. It's called Embodied Hope, and it's written by Professor Kelly, or, uh, yeah, Kelly Capick, who is uh, a professor at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And it's called Embodied Hope, A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. And Dr. Uh, Capic does not write from some distant, uh, even though it is, it's on top of a beautiful mountain with this gorgeous setting. So yes, that's literally where he wrote it. But let me tell you about the details of his life. His wife, 
was feeling off for several weeks, several months, and they were trying to get some answers about her, uh, her, her life. And, and, and what happened was uh, one day he couldn't get a hold of his wife. He kept calling her and kept calling her and texting, and she wouldn't respond. So he loaded up the kids in the car on top of the mountain where they live, and he starts heading down the mountain just trying to find her. And he knew in his gut he would find her having driven off one of the, the major ravines that, that wind up this road up to the top of Covenant College. But as he's driving up, he sees her driving up, and they wave, and he's like, oh, I guess everything's fine. So they head back home, they have dinner, and after dinner, she shares with him, I've been diagnosed with cancer, and I just haven't been able to talk about it. And then she goes to this like four-year battle of intense pain and suffering with chemo and, and rehab, and then she, she overcomes it. By God's grace, she beats cancer, and she's doing well. But then all of a sudden, she gets a disease that the Latin phrase, and I, and, but I don't remember that, but I do remember what it means. It means man on fire, and I don't remember the name of this disease, but it means when your extremities are in constant pain. So after having beaten cancer, she now suffers with this disease where her extremities are always on fire, and the nerves are always uh, going forth and so forth. And he wrote this book out of this, out of he and his wife dealing with this physical pain and chronic pain and suffering. I highly recommend this book, and he writes in this, whether first fostered from painful childhood experiences, heavy-handed preaching, or something else, we often imagine God in deeply problematic ways. Through Painful childhood experiences, heavy-handed preaching, or something else, we often imagine God in deeply problematic ways. We often assume that he has our worst at hand because we're living in the wilderness and we're going through some trial, going through some difficulty. But listen, I hope that just even today as we taste the good news of the story of this king, that you'll be encouraged that, that your God is with you in ways that you could never imagine and is for you in Jesus Christ. And this is a Savior that you can trust. So we find in our passage today that Jesus returns to Galilee where John had been arrested, John the Baptist. And Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. This is going to be in next week's passage, okay? So we're skipping ahead, but this is it. Uh, in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I'm going to leave this passage. It's really hard for me because, like, this is the, oh, man, I gave Tyson a good one. So, like, this is, like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then he calls his first disciples that he'll get into next week. And then Mark then today gives us these concrete examples of this is what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand. Evil, the king teaches. Evil is exposed and taken care of. And and disease has no place. Pain, suffering, disease is gone. So today we're going to see two things. The power of the king's teaching and the power of the king's deeds. His teaching and deeds, just two points. First, the power of the king's teaching. Jesus called four fishermen to follow him. And Mark tells us they did so immediately. And you, every time I've read the, any of the gospels, you read that and you're like, Why? Who would do that? Who would drop everything, sell a small business? You know, like uh, these were successful fishermen and they had businesses and, and leave it all behind, leave family behind and just follow this man. Why? Because there is power in his word. There's authority in his character and in his word. And after these men followed Jesus, they went to a small fishing village because right there, that's where they're living on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee 
It's called Capernaum, and it is the hometown of at least two disciples, and during this time, it served as their home base. This is where you first read in the first section of Mark and the other, the other Gospels. This is where they were living and doing ministry before they then started to march towards Jerusalem. And this day that Mark is describing, and today in our passage, it's one day, he is describing is on the Sabbath, which is Saturday for the Jewish people. And it says that they went immediately to the synagogue. And again, there's this word immediately. And throughout Mark, he just keeps pressing forward. Like immediately they did this, and immediately they did that, and immediately they did this. So it's the Sabbath. So what do you do immediately? You go to church. And they do so immediately. And there was prayer in, in, uh, in a synagogue. And uh, you could have Jewish worship if there was a quorum of 10 Jewish males. There, the, the, then worship could start. There was prayer, there was scripture reading, the Old Testament, of course, and any man who was trained in scripture, often a scribe, would stand and teach on the Torah. Any man could. It's kind of like the Quakers in a way. You kind of sat around and waited for somebody to get up and speak. So Jesus gets up to speak. And so it wouldn't have been unusual for him, like, hey, you know, who's this guy? Why is he preaching? Teaching was one of his primary callings. Uh, it says in the Gospel of Mark 16 times that we find him teaching, and 13 times he's called teacher. And Mark doesn't tell us what he said. He doesn't tell us what points he used or anything like that. All he tells us is this. They were astonished at his teaching. They were awestruck by him. And Mark will continually tell us about how the crowds were astonished by Jesus' words and Jesus' actions. They're astonished, they're astounded, and they're dumbfounded by him. Why? Because he taught with authority. Jesus taught with authority. His teaching was in contrast to the scribes. Uh, of the scribes. Were they horrible teachers? Were they boring? You know, I, no, probably not. That's not the point. Their authority, though, would always derive from some other teacher, some other theologian. Uh, they were constantly quoting Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis, right? So... They were lame. <laughs> and so, but Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't refer to Professor Capic or, or to Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis or some other early church father. He only talks his, what he has to say about the scripture. Because why? Because he has authority. He's the author of the word of God. Jesus' teaching came with inherent power. And so, for as we study Mark, it's an exciting thing to wonder what will happen to your life as you listen to the teaching of Jesus? And there should be an expectation that our life would be changed as these people's lives were changed. It is through God's word, but especially the gospels where our lives can be changed. If somebody comes to me and says, I want to start reading the Bible. I've never read the Bible. I don't know where to begin. Where should I start? I, I almost always point them to the gospel of John. For this very reason, and I have seen so many people come to faith in Jesus and walk with him faithfully, beginning right with the very words of Jesus, the Gospel of John. So if that's where you are, I would love to start reading the Bible. I have no idea where to begin. Begin with Mark or the Gospel of John, because it will take you directly to the words of Jesus. And there is power and there is authority in his teaching. The next thing we'll see this morning is the power of the king's deeds. While Jesus taught in the synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit started screaming. Doesn't happen every day in church. 
He had an unclean spirit, and it's called unclean because according to Jewish law, the spirit made the man unclean, and even if he was a Jewish male, he would not be allowed in the synagogue because he has this spirit. He's he's a demoniac. He's filled with an evil spirit. They don't let him in church, but he comes. And this man's presence in the synagogue, theologically, is probably meant to say, like, they understand that Jesus is here, and he's about to confront them. They know who Jesus is. The Spirit cries out through the man, We, what have you done with us? What have you done uh, to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, what's the main question that Mark is asking in chapters 1 through 8a? Uh, What is it? Who's Jesus? He has told us, and now a demon-possessed Man tells us, the demon himself tells us who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. He's the Holy One of God. The Spirit asks, have you come to destroy us? And so this demon isn't just speaking for himself. He's speaking of evil itself. He's speaking of the devil himself. And the, the answer to that question <laughs> is yes. I have come to destroy you. And actually, it was Eve, uh, that God told Eve that I would do so in the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis, that even though the serpent will strike your heel, I will crush your head. I get goosebumps just thinking about that. All the way back in the beginning of Genesis, in chapter 3, there's a promise that there is an evangelist coming, there's good news coming, there's somebody who will come, who will crush Satan's head. This is the man. The demon wasn't just speaking for himself, he's speaking for the devil himself, and and that demon through the man says, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. Jesus is the Holy One of God, thanks be to God. He's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords. He is the one who is ushering in the very kingdom of God. And I want us to pause just for a second here because we don't usually talk like that. Yeah, I was at church the other day and some dude with a demon walked in. (laughs) It probably happens. But most of us are highly, highly skeptical about personal evil. We're fine with it as as an intellectual concept, as as a philosophical concept. Of course there's evil. We see evil things. We see evil people. We see evil uh, cultures. We see evil uh, nations, leaders. We see evil all around us. We look at genocide, for example, and say, yeah, evil. My dad was an agnostic to his core, and he died an agnostic when I was only 30 years old. At 62, he passed away. He was a professor. He was very bright. And even though he didn't believe in personal evil, at the end of his life, he was beginning a book on evil because he'd seen so much of it in his life, and he wanted to write from a a psychological perspective a book about evil. So even if you're not a believer, you, you can't get around this idea of evil, but you may be really put off by this idea of personal evil, and our answers really for people who've suffered under evil are not very satisfying if you think about it. Like, hey, there really is no rhyme or reason for the universe. It all happened by chance. There was matter, there was nothing else, and there was this explosion, and then boom, there's everything. But it was just a weird mathematical chance, and this is what happened. But now really bad things happen to you, like genocide or death or or some evil thing. But at the end of the day, they're going to die and not be held accountable. You're going to die, and at the end of the day, you were just weak. You're on the wrong side of natural selection. What are you going to do about it? 
But as we see evidence of evil all around us, and you talk to someone who's confronted evil like, again, a victim of genocide, we see how personal it is. We also see how parasitic it is in this passage. Evil is a parasite. It needs a host. This spirit needs this man to do his work. Unlike Jesus, who is God in the flesh, this, this evil spirit is, is attached to another being. Jesus is fully God and fully man. This is not God invading a man. He is fully God and he is fully man. But this evil is a parasite, this unclean spirit. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis beautifully talks about this. And he says this, To be bad, Satan must exist and have intelligence and will personal. But existence, intelligence, and will are in themselves a good thing. Therefore, he must be getting them from the good power. Even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from his opponent. And do you now begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel? This is not a mere story for children. It is a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. And I love how Jesus rids this man of this unclean spirit. He simply says, be silent and come out of him. <laughs> the other day I was having a bad dream, and my wife, Becky, when I woke up the next day, she goes, you are so spiritual, you were praying in your sleep. <laughs> and I'm like, really, what? What do you mean? And she went on and said, you were going like, in the name of Jesus, like, and... <laughs> Like, you know what was going on? I had a dream that I, there was this demon. I really had this dream. And I was, like, trying to, like, come at it. And I was like, in the name of Jesus and our power, and, you know. Like. <laughs> I could never combat evil apart from the name of Jesus. I would have to call in his name. He doesn't say, in my name, I come at you. No, he just says, shut up and come out of him. What I love about it, he doesn't use a wizard staff, he doesn't say an incantation, he doesn't pull out Harry Potter's potion book and find out, you know, what Professor What's-His-Name Snape, you know, wrote in, in that book and like say, all right, I got to mix this up, you know. No, he just says, shut up, come out. Why? Because he's the king. Who is Jesus? He's the Holy One of God. And where the Holy One of God goes, evil has to present itself and say, oh, we're here, yeah, and we're evil. I'm the devil, and what are you going to do to us? You're going to kill us, you know? Oh, you're the Holy One of God. They can't shut up. They have to say the truth. Isn't that interesting? The liar is saying the truth. We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. So Jesus, evil comes right at him. He, he casts it out because evil has no presence in the Holy One of God. It has no authority. It has no power. It can't exist. And this is what the coming kingdom is like. No evil. No parasites. And then in our passage, we see something interesting because some people find a, de a demon behind every rock and behind every door and say everything's caused by evil or demons but I want you to notice that then immediately they go to this house and some people are just sick and they weren't demon possessed a bunch of them were I don't know why in this culture in this day and age so many people were demon possessed but some were demon possessed and some were sick and he doesn't confuse the two okay so not everything is caused by demons some of these folks were just physically ill and, and that's a part of the fall 
In verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and she is healed, not exercised. In verse 32, a crowd comes to the house to bring either the sick or people who are being oppressed by evil. Which brings us to the next part of our story. After church, Jesus and the four go to Simon's mother-in-law's house, and she's sick with a fever. And Jesus went to her, and he simply touched her and, and pulls her up, and she's healed immediately. Again, no wizard staff, no potion, no words of incantation. He just says, let's get up, let's go. And she gets up and begins to serve him. And rather than think of this in some sort of patriarchal way or to say, this is a beautiful example of what happens when Jesus heals us. We get up and serve him, men and women, all of us. When Jesus brings his healing shalom into our life, what do we do? We serve. We love him. What else would we do? Jesus went to her, he touched her, she's healed, and immediately she begins to serve. And word of God begins to spread around the area. In verse 28, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding area. So as soon as sundown, word's getting out into the, into the community in Galilee, and all these people start showing up, and people with a wide variety of diseases came and were healed, and many people with demons, they weren't allowed to speak. And I love that too. You may not tell anyone of this, these demons, because it was not time yet for Jesus' power and authority to be revealed. So what does this all mean? A lot. And we won't be able to unpack all of it. But Jesus is the king and who taught with authority. He comes to oppose evil. He comes to oppose disease. He, he comes to oppose death and decay and everything associated with the fall, everything that's wrong with the world, everything that's broken in the world, everything that's evil, sick, diseased, death and decay. Jesus says, I'm coming to crush it by his actions. Where I go physically in this earth, this stuff is not allowed to be. The sick are healed. Evil presents itself and is dealt with and cast out. Jesus is the king, and yet we live here in the, in the shadowlands, as Lewis called it, like right here now, where Jesus has come and the kingdom is present through the Holy Spirit and us as the church and his people, but it's not fully realized, and so we wait for the coming kingdom, the coming shalom, the coming Sabbath day when, when Jesus will return and bring it fully and finally, because just this week, I, there's news about Daniel Strand, a dear member of this church who's lost his brother far too young. A young man with, with three kids just passed away from cancer this week. Made me think about that family who lost their son in another shooting in Colorado. Every week, it feels like there's another shooting to talk about. Should not be. It's evil. And there's coming a day where there will be no more news like this. Jesus' authoritative words are so beautiful and they change our life, but so do his actions. This teaching makes me so thankful for a Savior who doesn't run from evil because that's where we live, who doesn't run from disease because that's where we live, who doesn't run from chronic pain because that's where we live, who doesn't run from the mess because that's where we live. And even though he would be in big trouble from a healing on the day of rest when he shouldn't have been working, and he would be in trouble for that, he did it anyway. Why? Because he's the king, and he does what he wants to do. <laughs> but secondly, because what a beautiful thing to do on the day of rest, to bring shalom. And even though he would get in big trouble for touching a woman that wasn't his wife and who was ceremonially unclean because she was sick, he touched her anyway on the Sabbath, and he healed her. 
And even though the woman who was healed wasn't supposed to serve on the Sabbath day because it's the day, the day of rest, she got up and started working and serving because that's, that's what you do out of joy of serving the Lord. She didn't stop her. It didn't stop her. And, and Jesus not a chauvinist. He's, he's just loving her. And even though it's the end of a very long day and the entire city shows up at Jesus' door, he deals with their disease and he deals with their pain and he invites them into his life and he heals them. Amen? Jesus is never too tired for you. He'll meet you at his door. He will welcome you in. And this Dr. Capic, you guys, have, if you have chronic pain or a sickness like cancer or struggling, you've got to read this book. It's so beautifully written and so helpful. He was saying how like, his wife struggles to believe that God would care about one woman's pain and suffering. But he does. And he even mentions something in this, the first chapter of this book. He goes, there are passages in the Bible that talk about God's extravagant love to the extent that we theological types really just bristle with words like, God sings over us. We just sang it. And every time I read it, I, I have to admit, I do exactly what he's talking about. Part of me is like, eh, I don't know, you know, that's God singing over us. We talked about, we sang in a song, The Reckless Love of God. I'm a theologian. I don't know about that word, the reckless love of God. God's not reckless. No, but he's extravagant. And he's self-sacrificing. He, that's kind of reckless to sacrifice yourself. So don't email about the song. No, I'm kidding. Like, but I'm wrestling with that word too. Reckless, I don't know if I like that word biblically. But I'll tell you what I love is extravagant. The love of God is extravagant. And Zephaniah says that God does sing over us. And in this book, he talks about the story of how a friend of his son uh, watched a scary movie. It was one of the Lord of the Rings, and maybe he was just too young to see it. And he went to bed that night, and all he could think about was orcs. And this kid is very sensitive, and he's very, very uh, scared, and he couldn't sleep. And so the father went in and talked to him and, and prayed over him and rubbed his back, and then he fell asleep. But as soon as the father got up, uh, he, he woke up and started crying again. So he went back to the bed and rubbed and did it again and again. He got up again and left, and the kid started crying again. So this time he got in, and he started singing over his son, a lullaby. And his son went to sleep and didn't wake up. And he got in bed with his son and cradled him in his arms. This is the gospel, friends. This is what God does. This is, if, a, if an earthly father would sing over his children, why wouldn't the heavenly father? We who are evil fathers, like myself, if, we're, if we would do such a beautiful thing for our children, why wouldn't our heavenly father? Kelly Capick, at the end of this first chapter, says this, This is the story of the God who is more holy than we can imagine and more near than we dare to believe. It's exactly what we say around here all the time. The more you get to know Jesus in the Bible, you'll see two things are absolutely true. God is more holy than you realize, and yet you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared imagine was true. And it's because of the cross. And the longer you walk with him, guess what? You're not gonna find like, oh, I'm actually way more holy. You're gonna find, no, God is way more holy. I'm way less holy than I realized. I find I'm way more sinful than I realize, but at the same time, I'm still loved and accepted by God, and the cross for us gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the gospel, the longer you walk with Jesus, doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger because the cross gets so much bigger. It's the story of the God who's more holy than we can imagine and more near than we can dare to believe. This is, 
the God whose perfections provoke awe, yet whose movement of condescension frightens us in its humility. This is the story of Emmanuel, the story of the gospel, and the story of how those who know this Lord can live amid the rubble, the dark questions, and the daunting fears. This is the story of what it means to be a creature living with hope in a broken world, not a hypothetical world, but this world filled with beauty and tears, with laughter and with ache. Let's pray.